0: All Christians have held for centuries that the Bible, this book, is final truth. This book really is what it claims to be. It is the Word of God to us. Now, so that, that's presenting us with a question this morning, and we're going to address this in the form of a question Can the Bible really be the Word of God? Or is the Bible just something else, another religious document, another religious attempt at nothing more than truthiness. Maybe we can find some gems in here. Maybe we can find some inspiration in this book. But can it really be said that this book has its origin in the God of the universe? That's a pretty amazing thing to believe, isn't it? Well, I want to start this series by taking a look at the two operative words In that short phrase, Word of God. So first, let's look at the word, Word. Human beings have a love affair with words. We speak them, we put them in literature, we think in words, we write poetry, we write novels. Uh, The Voice on television, how many have been watching The Voice? It's all about honoring people who can sing words. And incidentally, I think Daniel Bradbury is the one who's going to win the contest. He's that country western singer, 16 years old. She's got my vote anyway. But uh, you can see whether I'm a prophet later in the week, okay? We put them in dictionaries. We text them. We email them. We tweet them. We buy Kindles so we can read them and nooks. I even heard that the average woman speaks 20,000 words a day. The average man speaks 7,000 words a day. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to even get into that one. I did read another study, though, that said, now, men and women both speak about 16,000 a day. So you can pursue that study on your own. Uh, We even build houses, big houses, expensive houses in every community in which to store our words and preserve them. We, We put them in libraries. Millions, millions upon millions of words. So to be human... Is to be addicted to communication, and the fact is that humans are unique. Are humans of all species alone are uniquely equipped for language. First, we have a brain with a highly complex language speech center. Now, animals can make sounds, but animals do not have a brain, a center in their brain that helps them process their experience, the incoming data into thoughts and reflection and meaning and then recast it in words. Animals don't do that. I've got a little ring here in my ears. Maybe if you, if you guys aren't ringing out there, I'm okay, but I can handle it. Uh, but I want you to listen to a statement from MIT's Steven Pinker. He's the director of the Cognitive, uh, Center for Cognitive Neuroscience. He's written a work called The Language Instinct, The New Science of Language in the Mind. This is what he says. As you are reading these words, you are taking part in one of the wonders of the natural world. For you and I belong to a species with a remarkable ability. That ability is language. Simply by making noises with our mouths, we can reliably cause precise new combinations of ideas to arise in other people's minds. The ability comes so naturally that we are apt to forget what a miracle it is. And then Pinker goes on to speak uh, contrasting human beings with animals he says this human language is based on a very different design even the seed of human language in the brain is special and then Pinker goes on with that same contrast he says this animals do not have a special region in the brain devoted to language they possess a much smaller brain and they lack the anatomy to speak words if they could Now, the only exception to that is some form of parrots, okay? Uh, The parrots, like, are on Jack Sparrow's shoulder there, okay? They can mimic words. They can be conditioned. But when a parrot is saying, "Polly wants a cracker or whatever, they have no clue what they're talking about. In other words, they're not processing meaning. They're not gifted with language. They just have a, a throat apparatus that can mimic words. Uh, now, speaking of that apparatus we have, let's take a look how complex this is. Uh, Johannes uh, Mueller, who was one of the early students of of human speech, he did a lot of study on the, the, the physical apparatus we have that even allows us to put word, to form words. I'm just going to read a little bit from what he says. You'll see how complicated and complex this is. Okay, he says, He demonstrated that human speech involved the modulation of acoustic energy by the airway above the larynx, referred to as the superlarge large anneal tract. Sound energy for speech is generated in the larynx at the vocal folds. The subglottal system, which consists of lungs, trachea, and their associated muscles, provides the necessary power for speech production. The lungs produce the initial air pressure that is essential for the speech signal. The pharyngeal cavity, the oral cavity, the nasal cavity, shape the final output sound that is perceived as speech. Okay, i am read enough. Okay. This is complex. This is complicated. Now... Noam Komsky, he is probably the foremost linguist on planet Earth right now. He's also a philosopher. He sums it up really well. He says this, human language appears to be a unique phenomenon without significant analog similarity in the animal world. There is no reason to suppose that the gaps between humanity and animal are bridgeable. And then another linguist by the name of Dunbar, he says this, by the age of six, The average child has learned to use and understand about 13,000 words. By 18, it will have a working vocabulary of 60,000 words. That means it has been learning an average of 10 new words a day since its first birthday, the equivalent of a new word every 90 minutes of its waking life. Saying all of that, just to make the point that we human beings love our words. And we have been fine-tuned from all other creatures that walk this planet. We have been fine-tuned with a complexity, both mentally and physiologically, to communicate. Now, I want us to look at the second word in the phrase, word of God. The The second operative term is the word God. Now, when it comes to the idea of God and of faith... You know, we human beings, we only have three choices. There's, it can be boiled down to three choices. The first choice is there is no God. The origin of the universe is then unexplainably, it somehow unexplainably rose from nothing and is therefore silent. It's silent out there if there's no God. The second choice is an impersonal God. The origin of the universe is from some force or energy, again, unexplainably existent in the universe, but impersonal cold, and therefore the universe is silent under the second choice. The third choice is a personal God. In this this order, the origin of the universe is from an infinite, eternal person, who has the qualities, all the qualities that we identify and define as personhood. Those qualities are things like intelligence, emotion, creativity, sense of morality and justice, a longing for the good, and then a big one is relationality. That's just another fancy word for the capacity to love. So a personal God like that would ultimately be a very communicating God. Now, I do want to point out that each of these three choices is a faith choice. Options one and two require a great deal of faith. Um, to believe that everything that exists in all of its complexity just somehow out of nothing or out of some energy that has no prior explanation for its existence. It all just came. It all just happened from nothing. There's a great deal of faith in that. Obviously, faith in a personal God is also called for. Now, options one and two leave us alone in the universe just talking to ourselves and using words that ultimately have no point. They're meaningless. And even those three most important words in any human language, I love you, no matter what the passion is that a person says it, I don't care in what language, I love you. Ultimately, under options one and two, those words are pointless. They're empty. They're truthiness. And truthiness, I think, can only lead to despair. There's something in us that wants meaning and purpose. So I would suggest this morning that the option that by far most corresponds to the way we humans are so complexly made is clearly the third option. A personal God who loves words just like we do. Only more. Because He is an infinite God with an infinite vocabulary and with an infinite longing and desire and capacity to communicate. Which means He has a love for communication that we can't even begin to imagine. And I'd also like to suggest that a God like that who loves to communicate would be totally expected to communicate with those human beings that He so carefully created with the same capacity and the same passion. The two can come together. And God created people not just to talk to each other. That would leave us at the level of truthiness. I think we would expect a God who's so infinitely communicative, he would be a God who would want to also establish a communication with you and me so that we don't have to live just with truthiness, but we could know final truth. We could have a knowledge of him, a relationship, a connection with him. I think the thing that would really be surprising is if there were a personal God like that and he didn't seek to communicate with us, That would be the shocking thing. So I want to come back to this phrase, the Word of God. Because this is where we come to the likelihood of there being a book like this. And the Bible, on every page, practically every page, claims to be, the writers who who gave it to us, claim it to be the Word of God. 2,000 times throughout the Scripture we have the phrase, the Lord says. Several, when, when prophets uh, begin their ministry, the introductory phrase is, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Amos, etc., right on down the line. Second Timothy chapter 3 really sums it all up, what the human writers of the Scripture keep repeating over and over again. And it says this, all Scripture is inspired by God. Now the word inspire there is the word for the exhaling part of when we breathe. The idea here is that the words in this book are God breathed. They come from the very being of God. Now, how did that happen? Well, the Apostle Peter tells us how this happened. 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy of Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from Human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit. And they spoke from God. Now the phrase, moved by the Holy Spirit, you know the idea behind that, it's a Greek word used there, and it's the idea of a boat sitting out on a calm lake. There's not a breeze blowing. And it's just sort of dead in the water sitting there. But it has its sails hoisted. And all of a sudden a wind picks up and a wind comes along and begins to <clears throat> guide and carry that boat across the lake. That's what the scripture that's what the scripture presents us with. That's how God guided. He came alongside the 40 or so different human authors, human writers of this book. He came alongside of them and inspired them. Breathed upon them, inspired them with the words from their own bo- vocabularies that went on to the papyrus or whatever the writing the writing materials were in those ancient times. So it's, it's a lot like human inspiration. You know, we, we credit human inspiration. I mean, where would we be without human inspiration? The masterpieces of humanity, of literature, of art, of music, of business and science. I mean. Human inspiration, it's, and, and you've experienced human inspiration, it's those times when it just seems like there's this little river that gets flowing inside of you, and man, you, you can write, or you can study, or you, your thoughts are just flowing, they're coming together, it's, it's a, you're writing that river of inspiration. Well, it's similar to that, to what happened to these 40 or so authors. But this time it was God, this personal God, who came alongside of them with a message to communicate and so guided them that the very words, the very words, are, were the words he wanted to be communicated. Now, there are some questions, though, because there are maybe three or four or half a dozen other books on the earth that also claim to be the word of God. And huge religions are founded upon those claims. So, how can... How can persons hold this book to be the Word of God that, hit it, that has it right without being arrogant? A lot of people would say that is man, that's the, that's the epitome of arrogance to think that your book is the holy book and the others are not. It would be arrogance unless, unless it happened to be true. Okay? If it's true, then that's, that's what we're seeking. That's what we're seeking to come to some grip on during this series, all right? Now, here's one thing that's unique about the Scripture that cannot begin to be said about any other holy book on the planet. We've already made the point that for any book like this to really be God's Word, it would have to come from a personal God whose nature it is to communicate. And of all the holy books on the planet, the only one that reveals a God like that is the Scripture. The God of the Bible is one God in which three persons, eternal persons, have shared together for all of eternity one being. A God whose very nature For all of eternity is relational and communicating within himself. Before God ever created an angel, before God ever created any human being, he already had an eternity of communication that was going on between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, the very fundamental nature of the God of this universe is relational. It's communicating. He's been communicating, infinitely communicating for all of eternity. And that's the only kind of God who has a nature like that, that, would have, that who, who would be led to communicate with the rest of his beings, if he even created any other beings at all. Now, option number two talks about the possibility of a force being out there. We wouldn't expect a force, an it, to ever send us a message. We would never expect that. But a God like this, hey... We would definitely be expecting, man, a God like that, He's going to send us a message. Now, there, are, there is a religion or two that claim that their God is a personal God. But there's a, there's a bit of logic that, that breaks down here. And I'll explain it like this. If that God is a solitary, unitary, one person, one individual, non-Trinity kind of God, who existed eons and eons and eons for eternity past and didn't create angels and human beings until way down the line. Okay, where does that leave that God prior to creating any other beings? Well, it leaves him isolated and sort of like a hermit, (laughs) a hermit God. Now, a hermit God, if you dug down into the nature of an isolated hermit God, what would you see there? You might see great power but it would seem obvious that relationality is not part of the nature the fundamental nature of that god because he was able to exist eon or she eons and eons without any connection whatsoever relationship isn't that important at least so all i'm trying to say is this that the god who's revealed in the scripture is a God of relationship and exactly the kind of God that we would expect to be revealing himself to us. Whereas the other gods posited in other religions, and I'm not trying to speak disrespectfully. I'm not trying to do that. I'm simply trying to say when it comes to the question of whether there is such a thing as final truth as opposed to truthiness, I think we really got to do some hard work on that. We don't just need to shelf that question and say, well, I don't know what's true, maybe nothing is, maybe everything is, who knows, I don't know. No, I don't think that's the right attitude when it comes to the thing that anchors our meaning. We have no anchor for meaning and purpose in this world unless there is some sort of a connection to a final truth. This is an important issue. It's an important issue. Now another question is this, why would God give us a written word rather than speaking directly to us in spoken words? Why would he do that? Well, originally, God did speak in spoken words. In Eden, He spoke directly to our first parents, Adam and Eve. But then they broke with God. In other words, Adam and Eve, they divorced God. And as in any divorce, or most every divorce, communication breaks down. And what happened with humanity, it got very confused and dis- very confused, and distorted ideas about God started to grow up all over the place. People began to come up with their own versions and their own ideas of what God is and who God is. And some people just denied that He's even there at all. That was the origin of truthiness. This whole thing that leaves us locked in without any meaning. Now, Why did God, so why did God write his message down? Well, it's like that old game we used to play called, I think it's called gossip. I think think it might be called telegraph or telephone too. That's where you have a circle of maybe 10 or 15 people and someone someone in the circle whispers this short sentence to the person next to them and then that person whispers it and it goes around the circle and the fun of the game is you know that whatever comes out at the other end is going to be completely distorted. It's not going to sound anything like the original, the original thing. You've played that game, right? Okay, all right. That's what makes it fun. However, what if you change the game? And instead of whispering it to your neighbor, you, wrote it, you just wrote your sentence down on a piece of paper. And then you send it to the next person and the next person. And say to make it really fun, you, you, you raise it from 10 or 15 people up to 50. Oh, hey, Let's make it even more challenging. Let's put a thousand 1, people in the circle. And you start this little note with this little sentence passing around the circle okay, what's, gonna, what, what's the message going to be at the end of the circle? It's going to be the same because it's written down on a piece of paper. Now, I would agree that playing that game would be absolutely boring. <laughs> it would be no fun at all. But this is exactly what God did and why He did it. He sought to reestablish communication with His divorced humanity, His confused humanity. And so to do that, he gave us a written word. Words that are written down have clarity to them and they have a lasting power that spoken words do not have. Especially when those wor- the words being spoken are spoken to people that are really confused about the issue. But when it's written down... We all have the same book. I read it, you read it, you read it. The people in China today that are serving Christ, they're reading the same book we are. It's in their language, but it's the same book, same message. So we can all study it and understand it. And as we all read the Scripture, here's the thing that we begin to discover that is really mind-boggling. And I think, more than anything else, speaks to its credibility. And that is that in this written word, as you begin to read through it, and as God is seeking to reestablish his communication with us, there is one story, there's one theme, there's one plot that is unfolding from the beginning to the very end. And it unfolds in two stages. This book is very coordinated, well-structured, very ordered, even though Over 40 different people over a span of 1,500 years from Moses to the Apostle John. Most of these writers never knew each other. They lived in different places at different times in history. And yet they write with internal consistency so that the whole thing fits together beautifully like the pieces of a puzzle. And the face that comes up, the face that appears on that puzzle is is one face. It's the face of Jesus Christ. He is the theme of this book from beginning to end. The first stage of the book is called the Old Testament. The Old Testament is a string of prophets who all give their peace to the coming world redeemer who's going to be, bring light into the darkness. And he's going to come and restore the brokenness of humanity. And he's going to take us from truthiness. He's going to give us final truth to bank on and stake our, stake our claim on. Now the second part, the second stage of this book is the actual written record of that, of that coming Redeemer. That's called the New Testament, which tells us about and gives us the teachings of Jesus Christ. And you know, one of the things Jesus did several times, we'll probably look at this passage next week, he got his disciples together more than once, and he took them through the whole Scripture, and it says he showed them how everything in this book, he was the fulfillment of. Now, I said a moment ago, uh, some amazing things about the internal consistency of this book, how, how it all fits together. The same emerging picture and profile of this coming Redeemer, from prophet to prophet to prophet to prophet, it all coincides. For instance, his virgin birth. It would be a miraculous birth. The place of his birth. The profile of his ministry. And then the sacrificial but violent nature of his death is graphically described by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 53. But you know how many years Isaiah lived before the Romans even rose to power in history? And the Romans are the ones who invented the whole crucifixion idea. Isaiah lived in 700 B.C., several hundred years before crucifixion was even devised. And yet he describes it graphically. Now, when we come back And we're going to begin to close here. We come back to our word, word. Words are so descriptive of who we are and who God is, our love for words. So it shouldn't be surprising that when Jesus, the Redeemer, came into the world, he took one of the names or one of the titles he took to himself is that very word. (laughs) He was called the Word. That shows how fundamental language and communication is to God, that he would take to himself that as his name. Listen, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was, he, was with God, and the Word was God. He, that is Jesus, existed in the beginning with God the Father. And God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created and His life brought light to everyone. It's saying that Jesus is the eternal Son of God whose name, one of His names is the Word and He's the one who spoke creation into being, Jesus Christ. Now, look at, let's go all the way back to Genesis, to that passage. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the deep waters. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said... Then God spoke. Here's God's word into the darkness. Let there be light. And there was light. And then right on down through all the creative actions there, it keeps saying over and over again, then God spoke, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. Now, who is that speaking there? That is Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the one who is known as the Word. He is the expression of, of God in the creative act that brought this whole planet to be. Now, when it says Jesus is the Word, it simply means that He is the full expression of everything that God is, everything the Father and the Spirit are. He is that. Now, here we come to verse number 14 of John chapter 1, and this is probably the most amazing verse in the Bible because it says, So the Word became human. Became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of, listen to this, full of grace, that's a word for relationship, and truth, that's a word for final truth. And when Jesus came, he did something else that's very profound. He took the scriptures as his own. In other words, he began to refer to the Scriptures and his own teaching on an equal par. He began to call the Scripture, my word, as though he were the author of it, which indeed he is. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, 35. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. And then in his Sermon on the mount, his very first sermon, I want to, I want to read this parable. It says this, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise person who built his or her house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, beat against the house. It did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. On what? On my words. But then he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish person who built his or her house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, the beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. There's the contrast between truth, final truth, and nothing more than truthiness to build our lives upon. And Jesus Christ came claiming to offer us a rock, solid rock, upon which to build our lives and the lives of our loved ones and to have hope and redemption and to live our lives with purpose and zeal instead of having to fight a nagging despair that it's all pointless anyway. Now, when Jesus speaks to us, or when anyone speaks to us for that matter, what is the next thing required? Well, it calls for a response. God has spoken to us in His written word and then fulfilling it in His Son, Jesus Christ, the living word. So what is your response to to this truth this morning? In other words, which of these three choices, when it comes to faith, which is, which is the choice you're living by this morning? Is it choice number one? There is no God. So it's, it's simply silent out there, and it always will be. Or is your choice that of an impersonal God? You believe there's some force, some energy out there, but it's cold, it's, it's non-personal, and it's, it leaves us talking to ourselves. It's just silent out there. There's no real meaning. Or are you choosing to place your faith in this personal God who Jesus Christ came into our world to express so that we could see Him up close? If I believe the Apostle Paul puts into beautiful words the most appropriate response, I really do. And I believe if you're here this morning and you're just sort of searching out all these options, I want to thank you for being here. And I also want to, res- I want to say I highly respect you for even seeking out these questions. I really do. If you're here seeking this stuff, you know, I went through, uh, when I was a, in my third year of college, through halfway through my fourth year, and I was in a Christian college studying to be a pastor who was going to spend his life teaching this book. <laughs> but at the beginning of my junior year, I had a crisis of doubt. It almost hit suddenly. One day, I, I started asking myself, how can I know? I've always, been, I've always been told this is God's word. It hit me one day, well, wait a minute. <laughs> how do I know that's really true? Uh, And for a year and a half, that threw me, put me under a cloud of doubt and darkness. And I struggled. I wanted it to be true. And I used to sit in my room and I'd say, God, if you're real and this book is real, then within the next five minutes, (laughs) send someone to my door with a special message for me saying something like, Jim, God sent me to tell you that this is really true. Okay. Now, (laughs) The Lord, I'm not saying the Lord wouldn't do that for some people, but he did not do that for me. And you know what I had to do? I had to spend a year and a half seeking and searching with an open heart and an open mind and digging to come to some grasp. And you know what? I came out of that whole time far more solid and convinced that this book and what it claims to be is exactly what it is. And so I would just ask this morning if you're in that place that you not just do what so many people do and say it's a bunch of fairy tales. This is, this is nothing more than Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. I'll guarantee you it's a lot more than Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny. It really is. It's, this is profound. And it makes great sense. Take a look. I'm just encouraging you to take a look. And But here's the response that I came to and millions and millions and millions and millions, and millions of people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ and found a response from Him, this is the appropriate response. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what's your personal response today? Are you still shaking the divorce papers in God's face? Are you going to lay those divorce papers down and say, God, I don't want to be divorced from you anymore. I want to come to you. And you know, Jesus, the, the thing he said was, he described how a person comes to God to know him, to experience him. Jesus said, I've come into the world. I'm going to die on that cross for every human being out of love. I'm doing that because the thing that really divorced us is our sins. I've come to take the blame for all those sins. I'm going to die for every human being. And so if we will come to Christ and place our faith in Him and what He did on that cross, then His promise is two things. He'll forgive us. And the second thing, and this is really, this is really something, the second thing is He will personally reveal Himself, His presence, to your life so that you not only have an external, an external written record about Christ, but you can also have a personal encounter With that same Jesus Christ. If you come to Him in faith, if you come, if you take the faith of option one and two, it's dead silent out there. But if you come to option number three, you're going to meet Jesus on the other side of your expression of faith. So I want to encourage you to take that step if you've never taken it. If you are already a follower of Christ, here's, I would say two things number two things here. One, uh, love Him with all your heart, soul, and strength. And secondly, Be very careful about ever beginning to treat this book like its truthiness. I'll take part of it and leave a little bit of it aside. Take it as God's word and live by it and submit our lives to it. All right, well, uh, we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to bless us here in just a second. As we do that, I want to say this, the front of this auditorium is going to be uh, a place where you have the opportunity to come and spend more time with God. It's an opportunity where you can come and, and be prayed with, uh, be prayed for or pray with somebody, whatever need you might have, or it might be the need of a family member, a loved one. I would just say this, never underestimate, never underestimate what God can do in response to your prayer. Never put a lid on God, ever. Don't put a lid on Him this morning. You don't have to rush out to the ice cream. It'll be there, okay? But, if you, It's in your heart to spend time with God. You come and do that this morning and see what God can do in your life. Next week, we're going to talk about in more detail how this book actually came to us and came together, formed over the centuries and, uh, and did it with retaining its accuracy down to this day. So we're going to take a look at the history side of things and the psychological s- connections with it over next week. The third week, we're going to talk about the power of this word. And then the fourth week, uh, I have a, a scientist from Lab by the name of Steve Kristulovich. Steve is going to be here. He is working on the frontier cutting edge of science right now. He's working in the field of particle physics. He is... Uh, working with those super colliders over there at Fermilab. And uh, he knows this stuff inside and out. He's been doing it for 25 or 30 years now. And, uh, but he's also a devout follower of Jesus Christ. And Steve is going to be here, and he's going to, he's going to bring together for us the integration between the Scripture and science. Uh, so I want to encourage you to come. And in all these messages... These are, for, these are your for, for friends that are seeking. Think of somebody at work or in your neighborhood or a family that's got some of these questions. Invite them to come with you. And uh, I think God can use this. It, it could become a turning point in people's lives if they can see God and see his word. So, all right. Uh, let's stand together. And let's, let's pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. Oh, God, we thank you that you're a communicating God. You haven't left us alone in the dark. You've given us a light in the dark in your word. And so, Father, help us to walk according to that light. And I pray if there's people here, Lord, that are searching these questions with honest questions in their hearts. Lord, you love honest questions. I just pray that you'll continue to guide each one toward that, that step of faith uh, and help them work through these things. Heavenly Father, for those who know you, help us to stand solid in your word. And um, we just give you praise. Now as we go into a time of reflection on your, uh, in your presence, Lord, I pray that you'll fill the front of this room with your presence and glory. I pray that you'll fill that lobby with friendship and and meeting one another and enjoying each other's company. And we give you praise for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask uh...